0: Welcome. Merry Christmas. Thank you all for being here. I know some of y'all have come with family that are Crosspoint uh, members and you're here visiting family for the holidays, for Christmas morning. And morning. Um, Lynn Daniel told me in the back that he's got a bunch of family here. and He said, man, you better really turn it on this morning. You better give a good showing. <laughs> so I'm feeling the pressure. Not really. Um, if you're here this morning visiting with family or if you're here visiting, maybe looking for a church home, uh, I just want to let you know that you've you sort of stepped into co- a conversation that has been going on for, this is the 11th Sunday that we've been in the book of Isaiah. And it is a quite a, a complicated story. So this morning what I'm going to try and do is just really make it very simple as, as much as possible. Uh, I do encourage you, invite you that if there are sections you're like, man, what is it? what's going on here? All of those sermons are online. And you can go back and listen to them. And I think what it would do for you is open up a beautiful a beautiful section of your Bible that a lot of times I think is underdeveloped in uh, Christian circles because it is a little bit complicated. So I invite you to do that. I'm going to begin with prayer this morning. Uh, and I don't have a particular church to pray for this morning. We're going to pray for just the churches in Greenville. And we're going to pray about how we spend these next few minutes. God, first of all, this morning we want to... Lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ that are worshiping in other churches this morning. I, Lord, I am thankful that we have so many churches in our community. I'm thankful that there are small gatherings of your people that are enjoying you and enjoying um, a message each week. And um, that that's being delivered in very different ways, but with the same content of Christ crucified and risen. Lord, I'm thankful that we work alongside and live alongside brothers and sisters in Christ that uh, maybe sing from a a hymnal or sing uh, different types of songs and have a different uh, experience on Sunday mornings but are sharing the same Holy Spirit, the same Savior, uh, that celebrate the same empty tomb, and that this morning are celebrating the same incarnation of uh, God taking on flesh. Lord, we want to lift up those churches this morning and just pray that they are are uh, enjoying you, Lord. I pray that they are led by uh, folks that are cherishing Christ, that you would guard them from the feelings of a J-O-B, that they would, that it would be driven by calling, uh, passion, and worship. And Lord, that your people would be equipped to be salty, bright, and aromatic in Greenville and around uh, in Hunt County. Or as far as how we spend these next few minutes, I confess to you or confess in front of this people, and uh, as you well know, that this is not a, not a simple storyline, um, Lord, I pray that you will make it simple. I pray that you will bring this home for us this morning, that we will see what we have in this son that's been born. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in the book of Isaiah, I mentioned that, and uh, specifically in chapter 9. And if you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take that one in the seat back in front of you. And um, you can have that Bible. If you don't have one, you can write your name in the front and make it your own. Uh, if, you, if you have one but just didn't bring it, then I encourage you to grab that Bible. Because I really, I don't have like really emotional stories or funny stories. Um, every now and again, something like that may come up in a sermon, but that's not really what I'm about it's not really what I'm called to do. I'm called to expose what's in this book. So it's helpful if you have it in front of you. The scripture will be on the screen behind us as well, but I think there's something about having it in your hands, especially since the sermon is about the incarnation. Let's be incarnate with actually grabbing the book and, and touching it. Uh, I'm on page 573 if you're, if you're having a little difficult time finding Isaiah 9. it would be 573 and you're... Uh, Bible that's in your seat bottom there. I asked uh, the Treadwells to read our text this morning as part of our Advent reading, and I, I, I've kind of labored back and forth on whether I should read it again. And I think I want to, and just maybe share a few thoughts as we go, because that may be a way to sort of share the storyline um, without going into a tremendous amount of detail, and it will get us that much more into the passage. Chapter 9 and verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now let me just give you a little bit of context there. The couple chapters that we have considered as a church before uh, chapter 9 here, chapter 7 and 8 over the last few weeks, we've realized through the study of those chapters that Judah and Israel, Judah is the southern kingdom, Israel is the northern kingdom, are are moving in a way that's faithless and godless. Isaiah is a prophet, especially to Judah, but also has a message for Israel to the north. And Isaiah's message to them has been, trust God, God will protect you, God is is here for you. It's not God's best for you to contrive and, and scheme and make your own plans and means of protection. But trust God. Now, in the beginning of this chapter here, uh, this chapter really is a light in a very dark context. It's in, over the, the, the two chapters before, chapter seven and eight, it's sort of like the lights have gotten dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, where they've gotten really dark. And then in chapter nine, the lights aren't turned yet, on yet, they're just talked about. It's a prophetic passage about something that's going to happen. And in these first few verses, he talks about the darkness of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is what the land that would later be called Galilee. It's the land where 700 years later, the light would in fact come on as Christ began his ministry in Galilee. The reason these lands are mentioned specifically is because these are the very first lands to be invaded by Assyrian troops. It would be the darkest first, and 700 years later it would be the first to become light as Christ begins his ministry there. And this is what this next passage says. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That's what's coming. 700 years later, this light of the world is coming and is going to minister in Galilee and bring hope, peace, truth, life to this dark context. Okay? Now... Next, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. Now, this is a surprising hope and a surprising promise here, that you've multiplied the nation. Because the way Judah and Israel are moving, you would think that what's in store for them is extinction. You would think that a God that is holy and just would be, this would be another version of the flood, just a different means. He's not going to do it by water. But you would think that he would be destroying this people. But the message here, the shocking message is, not only is he not going to destroy this people, he's going to multiply this people. He's going to make them an abundant, multiplying nation. And next, you have increased its joy. The gloom and darkness that's coming on the lands of Judah and Israel is going to be so dark and so... Desperate and so difficult that a promise of joy would have been a a sweet promise. And that's what he promises. 700 years later, they don't know the time frame. But 700 years later, joy would come to this people. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He promises to this people, who really deserve to be extinct, that they're going to be multiplied. And he's going to bring them joy. Now, there are little tabs here, little clues as to how he's going to do that in these next verses. Just pay attention to the word for, F-O-R. There are three of them. The first two we considered last week, and the third four is going to be where we're going to spend our time this morning. Let's look at this first four in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is going to destroy the oppressor, or he's going to defeat the oppressor for them. The next verse, verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, at the moment that this is shared in Isaiah 9, where Isaiah shares this message with Judah and Israel, they're probably thinking, yeah, right, we really don't need any of those things right now because things are going pretty good. But the Syrian army, the Assyrian army, desperate times are in store for them. This is a promise that's shared at a moment of peace that later on would be treasured. And we're going to consider that here in a moment with some specifics. But here's the third four. And here's where we're going to spend our morning in verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Just I've just kind of recapped a wonderful list of promises. Now the way that those wonderful lists of promises are going to be fulfilled is in this third four, F-O-R. For unto us a son is born, and unto us a child is born, and a son is given. What I want to do in these next few minutes, my goal this morning on Christmas morning was to to get in and get out and nobody gets hurt. (laughs) To just make it very simple and a very complicated passage to account for those who may be here with us for the first time and haven't had the development of, of Isaiah that the church family has had, that we're just going to spend the majority of our time, and it's just a few minutes, on these four names for this son. Okay, that's, where, that's what we're going to do in these next few minutes. So here's the first name. Wonderful Counselor. Before we consider the names, though, let me just point out, and we can't miss the answer to the massive developing problem in Judah and in Israel is a child. I'll bring that full circle at the end, but I want you to just kind of notice the answer to a massive problem that involves Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of troops and death and exile and difficulty and darkness is a child. Now let's consider his name. First of all, wonderful counselor. The word here, wonderful, looks like it's sort of an adjective. Uh, It's actually not an adjective. It is actually a word that stands alone and means wonder. And it could be translated better a wonder of a counselor, a wonder himself who also counsels. It's a very strong word that is much more than an adjective. It tells us that this counsel that this child would bring would not need any additional counsel, but it would be whole and complete on its own. Unlike a human king who needs a court to give him wise counsel, this wonder of a counselor would need no court because he himself is a wonder. Now, what I'm going to do with each of these names is we're going to contrast each of these names with a king that we've gotten to know. For those of you that have been with us on the journey, you know about King Ahaz. He is the context. He's the main character in chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah. King Ahaz is the king of Judah at the time. Now you may remember the storyline, King Ahaz, when threatened by Israel to the north and Syria even further to the north in a deal that looks like it's really crafty and shrewd and wise, makes a deal with a whole nother country, the land or the country of Assyria, to protect them. It's like a kid that's being bullied at school or potentially bullied at school that goes and finds the meanest, biggest, baddest kid in school to protect him. Okay, But he did that godlessly and he did that faithlessly. We got to meet King Ahaz over these last few weeks. And we realized that how he moved, although in the eyes of the world and even in the eyes of the people of Judah and Israel, it's crafty through God's eyes. It was godless, faithless, and it was not trusting God's promises to protect Judah. In the moment, it looks like a great plan. But as it plays out, it turned out to be quite foolish. Now, as this people are promised that there is a son that would come to them, a child that would be born to them, as he's promised that he will be a wonder of a counselor, at the moment they may not be appreciating that. But eventually, when 185,000 Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem, laying siege to Jerusalem, somebody in Jerusalem, I guarantee, at least Isaiah and the few that are following him, are saying, man, thank goodness, we have a wonder of, wonder of a counselor coming because Ahaz wasn't it. Ahaz was not it. If they didn't appreciate it at that moment as 185,000 Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem, I would expect that later they appreciate it as they're being dragged off to Babylon to go into exile. I'm imagining Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We don't know that they were dragged, is that the word, dragged off at the same time. But I can just envision them being dragged off together where Daniel turns to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, Hang in there, guys. We have a wonder of a counselor that's coming eventually. Ahaz wasn't it, was he? No. But we have a good one that's coming eventually in God's time because we have a child that's been promised to us. He will be a wonder of a counselor. The second name that we've got from this passage or have been given from this passage is this child would be called Mighty God. Now in Hebrew, this term Mighty God is El, which that's God, Gibor, which means hero. It also is translated here Mighty A god of a hero is what you could write out in your margin there. A god of a hero or a hero whose chief characteristic is that he is God. It's a great manly name. It made me think of King David who was considered a mighty man. And you may remember King David's story. It's the same word in Hebrew, gibor, in reference to David. That he led a whole troop of heroes a whole troop of mighty men. King David was such a hero that he led the heroes. Well, this hero among heroes either grew weary or distracted and stayed home from a fight just long enough, just long enough to be tempted to infidelity and eventually murder. And this hero didn't turn out to be such a hero after all. He was among the best kings that, that Israel ever and he was in fact a mighty man but compared to this child that's promised compared to this hero of a God that's promised he didn't deliver Judah and Israel for that matter needs a hero so the promise of a coming one must be welcome a God of a hero this child thirdly will be called everlasting father The term father was often used of kings. This is not to take away from God the father as his name and his identity. This is speaking of this child that's promised will be called everlasting father in a king sort of way. Great kings were often considered to move in a way that's like a good father. And one of the greatest kings of Israel was Ahaz's son, a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was three years old when chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah were taking place. He was but a wee baby, and he would end up being one of the greatest kings of Israel, of Judah specifically. Let me share a couple of passages with you to give you a glimpse into this man's story. To find out what it means to be a fatherly sort of king. In 2 Kings chapter 18, it says about Hezekiah. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He's 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its own territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Hezekiah was such a great king that in fact to this day, the Jews believe that Hezekiah was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. They think he's the son that was born to us. He was that amazing of a king. He was a great father, in fact, a fatherly sort of king that looked out for his people, destroyed the things that were destroying them, removed the things that were tempting them. He was a great king and a fatherly sort. But the story doesn't end there with Hezekiah. Let me share just a few passages from a couple chapters later. In Isaiah chapter 20, listen to this continuing story of Hezekiah. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord God, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah, this fatherly sort of king turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wasn't ready to die. Gets the news and he's not ready. Before Isaiah had gone out in the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, Hezekiah. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. So he's dying of apparently an infection in some sort of boil. Not a pleasant thing to think about, but this guy's at death's door. He gets the news he's going to get 15 more years. A little bit later in this story, as he's in the healing process, there's some visitors that come from Babylon. Okay. Remember, we're talking about the fatherly king. We're talking about the guy that the Jews believe fulfilled this prophet, pro- prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Let's continue with the story. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now what Hezekiah didn't realize is these weren't just visitors. This was a recon team. This would be like guys that come to visit your house to figure out, is this house worth breaking into and stealing everything later? That's exactly what's unfolding here. And Hezekiah was unwise and faithless in inviting these guys in to see all the treasures in the storehouses. So listen to what Isaiah says to him a few verses later. So Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Remember, we're listening to that. We're hearing the story of the fatherly king. The guys that the Jews believe fulfilled this passage. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. You're going to go into exile. This people is going to go into exile into Babylon. They were a recon team, Hezekiah. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And listen, this is the heartbreaking part. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Just let that hit you for a minute. They shall be ripped from their homes, ripped from their lands, and they shall be eunuchs in the king's court in Babylon. So Hezekiah, the fatherly king that you would think would be a great father here, that would say, no, take me first. Don't do that to my sons and my grandsons. Take me. Take my life now. Don't give me these extra 15 years if this is the price. Here's what he says. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good for he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Why not if it's all going to go well for me? You know what the sad reality is in that story and the sad t- lesson in that story is that even a great father will disappoint you. Some of you are sitting next to a father on a row. Uh, with a father that are just disappointed, will get used used to it. If you're a young man and you're going to be a father someday, you will disappoint as well. And even a great king who moved in a fatherly way, disappoints. But here's the reality: even if he managed to live his life without disappointing, if we could imagine that even being possible, 15 years later he croaks. 15 years later he dies. So imagine how welcome this promise would be of a child that would be born to them that would be called everlasting father. Now wait a minute. You're promising a father that's going to be, a king that's going to move in a fatherly way that won't die, that won't compromise, that won't say something that proves in the end that he's really selfish and looking out for himself. Okay, that sounds like a promise worth holding on to. An everlasting father the last name from this passage that we can glean draw out is that this child will be called a prince of peace now for us when we hear that word peace we think that's the absence of conflict that's really a summary of how most people define peace well for the the jew that word in hebrew is shalom which means so much more than the absence of conflict it means wholeness completeness You mean there's a child that's going to be born to them that's going to bring such wholeness and completeness that it could actually be called his name? Man, that's a sweet promise for this people because they've never experienced it. Not in the south in Judah and not in the north in Israel. They've never experienced it. Over 300 years worth of kings and roller coasters with a good king that eventually dies or disappoints and a bad king, which is obviously a bad king. A good king who either dies or disappoints, and then a bad king, and then a bad king, bad king, bad king. Oh, here's a good king again, but he dies or disappoints. Man, the promise of peace? That's the opposite of peace, imagining living in that environment, where from one king to the next, you didn't know what to expect. Ironically, the son of Hezekiah... The man that the Jews believed was the fulfillment of this passage. The son of Hezekiah was a man named Manasseh. And Manasseh was maybe the worst, evil, ungodly king in the history of Israel or Judah. Listen to this, just a couple of verses about Manasseh. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practice of the, practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and, and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem... Will, put, will I put my name? He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And just get this. He burned his own son as an offering and used fortune telling, telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He is also the guy that is believed to be that ordered the murder of Isaiah and, as legend has it, to have him sawn in two. Man, his dad was a great king. Can you imagine leading a family in Judah at this time? Can you imagine the instability from one king to the next? You got the greatest, most fatherly king, and then his son is a dirtbag. Man, what a roller coaster. You're going to promise some peace? Peace. I think they could use it. This child that's promised to them, this son, this wonder of a counselor, this hero, this king was, was to be the prince of peace. What a welcome, welcome title for this people. Verses 7, we'll end our morning with just these thoughts. I have a couple of thoughts for you to end with. or We'll end with this passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. No compromises, unlike all these other kings. No disappointments. Nobody croaks. Nobody makes deals with other people conspiring and being crafty. Just godly wisdom. Great, wonderful wisdom that goes on forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts Will do this. All of these things will come to this people in the form of a child. The Lord will do this. Two brief points for you to consider. First of all, great things are best appreciated with a backdrop of difficult circumstances. That's been a theme for us in Isaiah. Great and wonderful things are best appreciated in a backdrop of difficult circumstances. Let me just let you know, if you have some difficult circumstances right now, connect those circumstances to what I'm saying right here. If you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I believe what our Bibles say, that He's not going to waste that darkness that you may be experiencing, that He's going to do something with it. That's what He's doing here in Israel and Judah. It's a pattern for Him. The first words that are spoken by God in our Bible is where he's speaking light into darkness. It's a pattern for him to do great and wonderful things in dark situations and contexts. Just a few chapters later, he allows the fall of man in the garden. You think he could have prevented that? Of course he could. He's God. Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he allow the serpent to be there? Satan in the form of a serpent. Because he's going to let it get dark. Because later there's going to be a hero born 700 years after this passage is prophesied, 2000 years ago for us, a mighty hero would be born that would restore people to that garden. That's the way he moves. He lets things get dark. He can even, in some cases, ordain the darkness without being contaminated by sin in any way, without being the author of sin. He can let this darkness develop and even ordain in certain cases this darkness so that light and awesome and great things can show up in those contexts. That's what he did with his son. And he let the darkness of the exodus or the darkness of Egypt, 400 years of slavery. He could have stopped that. Anybody doubt that? He's God. But he let that develop for 400 years of darkness so that he would be the hero of the exodus. And he's letting the darkness here of Judah and Israel develop so that 700 years later, light would come to Galilee. Man, be real personal about your darknesses and difficulties and know that he's not going to waste that. He wants to show up as great and awesome in that situation. It's a pattern. I've been um, spending some time these last few weeks with a little devotional book that I've had for years called Valley of Vision. The very first devotional in the Valley of Vision. It's a devotional book from Old Puritans. I want you to listen. Just a brief excerpt from the very first devotional in this Bible. Or in this, not a Bible, a little devotional book. Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths But I see thee in the heights. hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That to be broken, or the broken heart, is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Man, we can be thankful in all things when we realize he's not going to waste the darkness. It's ordained or allowed for the purpose of him being famous in your life. It's how he moves. But I need to share this thought. There are the contours of the gospel in this thought. They're the contours of the gospel in these last few chapters that we've considered as a church family that we've even considered just this morning. See, we're not just passengers or helpless victims in our darknesses. In some cases, we may be. You may be experiencing a darkness that's at the hands of someone else who's moving in sin. But man, I can bring on plenty of darkness on my own. Any of you? We're not just victims and passengers in all the darknesses we experience. Just consider this for a moment. In chapters 7 through 9 of Isaiah, as a church family, we have considered these human kings. Even this morning, we contrasted the king of kings with these human kings. And we've come to appreciate the king of kings. But chapters 7 and 9 aren't just about kings. They're about people. Chapter 7 through 9 of Isaiah is a stark lesson on the disappointment of human beings. And climbing into these stories should help you see yourselves right in the thick of the disappointment. Climbing into these stories and really being honest with them, reckoning with them, you should see your failures in theirs. You should see the compromises that you make in the compromises that they made. You should see your sins in the sins that they committed. Because here's the good news. When that happens, the grace and the forgiveness that we find in this promised son, this Christ that we now enjoy, is all the sweeter. It's all the sweeter. It is truly light in our dark. And the good news is so much more than just news. It's truly good for each of us. The second point I want to leave with you this morning is that God did all the delivering and the saving here. What He's promising in this son and this child is to be born to them. What all He's going to accomplish, all these mighty and awesome names that He's given this child. What He's going to do through this child. He gets all the glory in that. They're all His verbs. Man is the one that made the mess. And God is the one that cleans it up. And He's going to do it all through a child. It sounds like God to do something so grand through such an unlikely and expected means. He makes the point at the end of this passage, the climax of the entire passage, is the zeal of the Lord will do this. What's going to be accomplished here in the saving of Judah and Israel and the saving of a people that would be grafted into them, that's us. It's all his verbs and it's all for his glory. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved. Now this is written to a bunch of Gentiles. It says, By grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing." The zeal of the Lord will do this. The reason he wants us to know that, the reason we need to hear that ring in our ears, that it is not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the problem is we're glory thieves, every last one of us. And we want to feel like we've contributed to this salvation experience in some way. But he wants us to hear it over and over again. The zeal of the Lord will do this. I am doing this. Just stand and be still and silent while I part the Red Sea. Watch me save you. He wants every ounce of the glory and he rates every ounce of it. I really don't have anything more than that this morning. I want us to have a supper together. And I want us to have a supper together in light of what we've considered these last few weeks, especially this morning. Focusing primarily on Christ being the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 2, as I am just referenced that passage, has a nice development of peace. Really, in some ways, it's about peace. If you'd like to turn there and follow along, you're welcome to. If not, you can just listen. It's a little paragraph about the peace that's won for us in this promised Son. And of what the nature of that piece. And I'll try and bring some of it out without preaching another message. I promise. It's just a couple of thoughts. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with, in flesh by hands. Remember, you Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, two beautiful words. This is our version of chapter 9 that starts with the same word, but. But God does something glorious and wonderful. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the agent of peace right there. Peace was hard won. It was expensive. It cost his own blood. For he himself is our peace. Peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This peace that's hard one that's so profound is that it's going to unite Jew and Gentile. The two most unlikely people to unite. It's gonna be so profound, it's gonna unite them as a whole new man, a whole new humanity. And that whole new humanity is called the church. Man, this peace is hard won, but it's profound. It's potent peace. The kind of peace that can bring a man and woman that are at odds with each other in marriage into a place of oneness. The kind of peace that can bring together people of all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds, all sorts of cultural backgrounds, all sorts of experiences, life experiences to bring them together as one? Yeah, he's the Prince of Peace, alright. That peace was hard won and it is profound and potent. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both or we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Hear wholeness. Not the absence of conflict. here wholeness and completeness. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a passage, a chapter, or excuse me, a paragraph about peace. It's about bringing together the most unlikely of people. And it's a passage about the church. That's the same thing. That's what the church is. The Prince of Peace won it for us. And as we deliver, or we we distribute the elements in these next few minutes, and we take the supper together, Let's enjoy the hard-won peace that he accomplished through the cross. Let me give you just some brief instructions for our supper. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, I invite you to take and drink and eat. If you are not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, if there's no faith venture in this, if there's no faith element to this, then don't take this meal. It's not for you. We're not being exclusive there. I want to invite you to just consider and contemplate. Why aren't you? Why wouldn't you be part of this crazy, awesome, scandalous story that's unfolded for thousands of years? Man, I would love the chance to talk with you more about that. Maybe the folks that invited you this morning, maybe the family members that you're going to spend the next day or the next 12 hours or 24 hours with or whatever, maybe they can share that great story with you. But if you're not trusting him right now, just let's forego this meal. But if you are, Realize we are participating in a meal together as a family, as a one, okay? As a people, hard one, a piece that was hard one. Let's distribute the elements.